we come in humble supplication for those gifts that Christ alone gives and the promise that he extends uh, to us as we confess our sins, as we acknowledge our debts, uh, he is pleased to forgive us our debts. As we draw near convinced of his fatherly affection for us established in the Son, uh, we do so uh, asking uh, that the Spirit would enable us uh, to cast ourselves wholly upon his provision as we continue to grapple with the truth of the corruption of our flesh and the sin of which we continue to be ashamed as we find the healing, the forgiveness, and the peace in the Lord Jesus Christ as the riches of his inexhaustible grace are brought to bear upon our hearts. And so as we draw near for worship, it is most fitting that we do so, entering into a time of confession for sin. So we'll open our time of confession with a time of private and silent confession, and I'll bring the time of confession to a close with a pastoral prayer. I'll take a brief moment of silent and private confession of sin now. Most merciful Father, we acknowledge and confess before you that we carry about in our hearts the seeds of the most heinous sins, and this to our great shame, for it is a painful and ongoing reminder of our participation in the rebellion in our first father, Adam. We give you thanks for the pardon and death which has come to the old. We continue to groan as it exerts its dark influence, causing us to see things wrongly, and to do that which we are ashamed of. Father, forgive us. You know our hearts. They are not hidden from you. You know that which we do in the hidden places, that which we do which we conceal from others. 
and even about which we so often deceive ourselves. Father, open our eyes to the truth of your word, to the provision for sin in the Lord Jesus Christ, and drive us to acknowledge the truth of your word as it pronounces its truth upon what we have done and then drives us into the arms of the one who has made atonement for us. Teach us, Father, to hate our errors. Cleanse us from our secret faults. Press upon our hearts the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ and continue to strengthen us in the way of life that we might be quicker and quicker to flee from sin, that we might be quicker and quicker to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the gracious influence of the Holy Spirit. Do these things, Father, for the sake of your great name and for our good. For we pray in Jesus Christ. Amen. To all those who are looking in faith, to the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing your sins in accord with God's holy word. Hear the words of comfort from Hebrews chapter 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Yes and amen. Well, I'll invite you to stand with me as we sing together Psalm 23c, The Lord is my shepherd.
relationship that we enjoy as sons, we enter into a new relationship with God's law as well. And I've been reading through Psalm 119, which is a lovely expression of that new relationship to the law, which no longer condemns, but which now sets forth to new creation. Indeed, our hearts, which have been born from above, it sets forth to the new creation the loveliness of God on display in righteousness, and holiness, and goodness, as is plainly set forth in God's law. And so we continue reading through Psalm 119, verses 25 through 32. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. You hear in the psalmist's meditation of the new life in which he has been made a participant glimpses something beautiful in the way of the Lord. But even as verse 32 closes, he knows that it is only by the gracious influence of that Lord that he is enabled to walk therein. And so we continue to seek that gracious influence, that life of Christ in which we participate even now by faith, looking unto him day by day. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon our time in the word. How wonderful are your works, O Lord. How excellent are your ways. How good you are to open our eyes to see that. And to bring us out of darkness into your marvelous light. By the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In whom we stand before you as children. Crying, Father. Father, and in whom we continue to learn, to live by faith, delighting to call you God as we come to understand more and more of who you are and what you have done for us by means of the Spirit of Christ and the Word of Christ. And so we ask as we turn our attention to the excellencies of our Redeemer, to the mystery of this one who is most blessed, most wonderful, Jesus Christ, true God, true man, that you might enable us to see a little clearer that which is too high for us, and that glimpsing it a little clearer, our hearts might fill with joy and awe at your wonderful ways of redemption 
extended unto us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Attend us now by the powerful working of the Spirit as the word goes forth, making us to know that these things are true and lovely and ours and indeed life itself. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. I'll read for us uh, John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18 and following the passage in John will also read question 21 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. But first, this is the very word of God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Now Westminster Shorter Catechism question 21 asks, Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Who's the most impressive person you know personally? Is there someone that you can think of that you have either met or have gotten acquainted with and you think to yourself, that one's remarkable. <laughs> That's a pretty impressive human being. Most of the impressive people I've met are scholars, so they're really not that interesting. 
I went to high school with a kid who won the Super Bowl. We played ball together. I think he scored two touchdowns in the Super Bowl. He was a running back for the New Orleans Saints, played with Drew Brees. pretty impressive. I mean, it's, it's impressive. I mean, just considered objectively, not that many people get to play in the NFL. Not that many people win the Super Bowl who do play in the NFL. The fact that you got to see that. I mean, he was an incredible athlete, even at the time we played ball together. He was a remarkable athlete. It was pretty plain that he was going to do impressive things. But it's not that, it's not really that impressive. And if you do know someone impressive, the fact of what they did commenced in time. They had a beginning. So maybe they did one or two really interesting things that established them in your mind as, that's cool. John invites us to consider a different order of impressive altogether. He says, this, this man that lived among us, whom we spent time talking with, whom we saw, if we take the prologue of John, we, we saw him, we, we heard him, we handled him, we touched him. And this one is the eternal son of God. This one is uh, the one who created all things. Uh, this is the one who is... Uh, my life and yours. I know a guy who won the Super Bowl. <laughs> Seems paltry by comparison. This is the one who upholds the universe. This is the one who gives understanding. This is the one who enables thought. This is the one who fed 5,000. Is the one who told the wind and the waves to be quiet. This is the one who walked on water. This is the one who raised the dead. This is the one who was with the Father in the beginning. This is the one who is the wisdom of God incarnate. And on and on we go. We get here in this question a simple declaration at the end of the day that the most impressive person, conceivable, has taken us unto himself as his special possession. The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's actually a lovely place to start. Because it so beautifully and simply embodies the truth and the wonder that sits at the heart of our life, that sits at the heart of the church's life, that Jesus saves, and that Jesus alone saves. That's how it starts, question 21. The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, which implies there may be imposters, <laughs> which implies that we may be tempted to seek out other redeemers. But it also suggests that we might not like the claims of exclusivity, which is really just a different angle on that same dynamic. You hear this insistence on the exclusivity even 
in John's prologue. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. A lot of people think they know something about God. Jesus experienced this all throughout his earthly ministry. You think you know the Father. If you knew the Father, you would know me. Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. You don't like me. What does that say about how you like the Father? A lot of people claim to know God these days, right? People are pretty content to talk about God in general, as long as they can keep it as nebulous and as amorphous as possible. But when it takes the specificity of the Son, the only Redeemer of God's elect, well, that becomes a little bit more problematic, but we delight in it because it means their salvation. Jesus is going to say later, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Consider the two responses to that claim. The world says, wait, only you? Only this way? You've got the truth? You've got the life? I can't carve it out somewhere else? I can't find it somewhere else? And the church goes, salvation! <laughs> life, truth. The way that was closed to us when Adam fell and we in him, flaming sword, blocking the way to blessedness and life, lies adopted where truth should have reigned. The way, the truth, the life, he's here. It's not hopeless. All is not lost. This is the simple declaration that sits at the heart of the church, Jesus saves. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He wonderfully teaches. Grappling with that wonder and that stumbling block, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's much of what we were thinking through in First Peter, wasn't it? stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Well, rejection wasn't a sort of innocuous, I don't like this one. Let's find something else. Rejection was the cross. Rejection was crucify him. Rejection was nail him to a tree. And God said, fine, I'll build a structure. This is the structure over here built upon the stone that the builders have rejected, which has become the cornerstone, a rock of stumbling, a stone of offense that sits at the life of the church, the wonder that Jesus Christ saves and the difficulty that the stone continues to be rejected, that the claim continues to cause stumbling. But it's worth rejoicing in, isn't it? Coming off of what we had been exploring with man's plight into sin and misery, the wonder that God did not leave all in such a state, and then further understanding and how he rescued from such an abysmal and dark condition by a redeemer, by the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is in a person and it's the Lord Jesus Christ in whom all of the blessings of God come unto us. A message that continues to go forth to those who are stumbling as we see that not all stumble, some see, 
God is pleased to grant the eyes of faith. This exclusivity of the salvation of Jesus Christ sits as the uncompromisable witness of the church. The church hasn't always been up to that challenge, has she? This was part and parcel to what formed the OPC. Did you know that? J. Gresham Machen and what was taking place in the Presbyterian Mission Board and the missions arm of the Presbyterian Church at the time in the earliest 20th century put in their operating agenda not to make Christ a big deal. They were to find commonality in all religions of the world, working to elevate the cultures by not insisting on those stumbling blocks and ennobling by virtue of man's word saying, yes, yes, we agree on these things. There's a God. Yes, yes, we agree on that. And Machen at the time was incensed. There's no gospel there. There's no hope there. There's no life there. It isn't this nebulous declaration that there is a God and that love is good that's going to save anyone. It's the particular offensive declaration that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. What's offensive about that? It means that we can't save ourselves. It means that if we're going to be saved, it's got to be through God's appointed means. That's offensive in so many different ways, but it saves. The cornerstone has become a stumbling block, a stone of offense. Our delight is that which causes others to stumble because it's the Lord Jesus Christ. The simple declarations, there is one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. He gave himself as a ransom for all, that is Jew and Gentile alike. He highlights there the one God and the theological extrapolation that he draws from this is that there's one way of salvation. How many people think about that? Okay, there's, there's one God. If he's as big as all that, then there's got to be lots of ways of salvation. Scripture reasons counter instinctively. He says, no, there's one God, and because there's one God, there's one way of salvation. The God-man, Jesus Christ. It's true for Jews. It's true for Gentiles. It's true for the wise. It's true for the foolish. It's true for the rich. It's true for the poor. God shows no partiality, sets forth the Lord Jesus Christ, the wonder of salvation, and the stone of stumbling. What is he to you? The riches of God's kindness and mercy and grace in extending salvation unto ruined and lost sinners? Or someone who's kind of offensive, taking such claims unto himself, you're the way, you're the truth, you're the life. Think about how that offends the flesh. What is he to you? What is he to your heart? Let's revel here also in the simplicity of the declaration. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1-7, teaches that not everything in Scripture is equally clear. There are a lot of things in Scripture that are difficult to understand, but it goes on to say that what is necessary for salvation is so simple and plain that even a child can grasp it. The sum and the substance of saving knowledge, as Jesus Christ saves. Come to him. Come to him and live. He will turn aside no one who comes to him. That's what we teach our children, isn't it? 
We look to Jesus. We run to Jesus. We seek all things from the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ is everything we need. He possesses every blessing. In him we have received all of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. There is no gift, no blessing to be found anywhere other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we teach our children, go to Jesus. We go to Jesus. The church goes to Jesus. We all run to Jesus and Jesus freely gives as we run to him. We know well the truth that Jesus saves as a church and as that which we communicate to our children. We also know well the stumbling that that causes to an unbelieving world. He is the only redeemer of God's elect. He loves us with an exclusive love and he teaches us to do the same in return. But the question goes on, doesn't it? The glory of Christ is not just that he is an exclusive savior, an exclusive redeemer. He's a remarkable person. <laughs> not just in what he does, but who he is. That's what it says. The Lord Jesus Christ, being the eternal Son of God, we said this morning that everyone has to answer the question, who is Jesus? Everybody's got to answer that question. Who is Jesus? What did he claim for himself? Was he, was he true in what he said? What, what did he say of himself? Is he, is he true in what he said of himself? There's two ways to go about answering this question, who is Jesus? And you see the two ways reflected on the one hand in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in the other hand, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And then the other hand, in the Gospel of John. The first way to answer this question, you start from below. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all start from below. Jesus, born of Mary. Jesus, the true son of David. Jesus, the true seed of Abraham. Now he's much more in the Synoptic Gospels, certainly. Matthew 3 highlights that. The heavens open and a voice declares, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He's far more than just the true Son of David. He is the eternal Son of God. But in John's Gospel, you get a different angle altogether. John's Gospel feels different. From the very outset, John's Gospel feels different. In John's Gospel, you start from above. And that's what we read in Chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, called the prologue of John's Gospel. John brings to mind not the Virgin Mary and the wonderful operations of the Spirit upon her. John goes back to Genesis 1-1 and writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let me just make a few observations on this incredible passage. Notice in verses 1 and 2, we have both distinctness and unity. This would become the heart of the orthodox articulation of the Trinity. And the word was with God. That's distinction. You have two distinct parties there. The word and God. And they are together. The word was with God. This is a cooperative togetherness. 
But not just that. This was a mutual delight in the glory that God shared in himself. As Jesus astonishingly prayed in John 17, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Do you ever have friends who just sort of say things that leave you astonished? Could you imagine hearing Jesus pray that? Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I shared with you before the world existed. And you're like, I'm a little tired right now. I understand all the words you just used, <laughs> but they seem to generate something greater still. <laughs> so there is this mutual delight in glory between two distinct parties. The word was with God, but there's also unity. The word was God of the same substance is how the church came to speak of it. Homoousia, not homoousia, of like or similar substance. Homoousia, of the same substance. The Son, very God of very God. Light of light. And that's really what the prologue makes plain of the eternal Son. Now, likely you've heard somebody say, well, verse 1 should actually be translated, and the word was a God, since there's no definite article in the Greek. To which you doubtlessly reply, actually, in Greek grammar, definite nouns lack the definite article to clearly indicate they are operating as predicates in a predicate nominative statement. That's what you say, right? No, that's not what you say. Probably you just say, well, maybe we just keep reading John 1 to see what else we learn about this word who was God and see if it clears itself up. In verse 3, we read, everything is made through him. So the creation of all things is assigned to this word. Who created all things? The true and living God. In verse 4, we read that the word is the life of man. So life is ascribed to this word as that which he can uniquely give. Who alone possesses life in himself to give to others? The true and living God. In verse 5 and 9, this word is light. So light is ascribed to this word. Of God, it is said that he clothes himself in light. And the first creative word was let there be light. Who gives light? It is the true and living God. In verse 16, this one possesses fullness. And from his fullness, we all receive grace upon grace. Who can possess and give and not diminish? Now, if you come to me in my better moments, I'm willing to give. But what I have to give is limited. I'm going to run out eventually. And if I give to you, I can't give to another. But from his fullness, we have all received inexhaustible grace. 
Only the infinite, living, and true God can give and not want, can distribute and not be in lack. And so by the time we get to verse 18 and read, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. We're not left wondering whether this word was a God. We're left astonished at the mystery that the word was God. That the eternal son is very God of very God. And so when we come to the end of John's gospel and Thomas exclaims simply with the faith of a child to the Lord Jesus, my king and my God, we worship at the feet of this one, the likes of which there is not to be found in heaven or on earth. Scripture plainly presents the Lord Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, to our great astonishment and amazement. Consider the depths of condescending love this presents to us in the truth of Jesus Christ who walked among us as true God. Any parent who has been up with a sick child all night knows that love can move you to stoop quite low. Your child is sick, and what do you do? You clean some pretty intense messes. You do laundry at 2.30 in the morning. You wipe away tears. You give up your bed. You sleep on the floor, and so you forfeit sleep. You extend comfort at cost, all for love's sake. But that stooping is not so low, from health to near sickness, from the comfort of sleep to the discomfort of watchfulness and cold floors. The eternal Son set aside the glory he enjoyed with the Father before all worlds to draw near to us. To make known the glory that we had forfeited by our sin and rebellion, all for love's sake. Do you entertain doubts of God's love for you? The love of the Father sending forth his beloved Son. The love of the Son willingly entering into our mess. The love of the Spirit in securing the people of God and taking most intimate residence in and among us. If we see the love of parents and the downward motion of a health parent to a sick child, how much more ought we to see the otherworldly love of God in the infinite condescension of the eternal Son? Jesus Christ, our Lord, is true God, the only Redeemer of God's elect. And if that's not enough, the wonder is he's also true man. I'll do this point more briefly, I promise. Who being the eternal son of God became man and who was and continues to be God and man, two distinct natures in one person forever. That's what John marvels at in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The wonder of Jesus Christ is not only that he's true God, but that he's also true man. This is not some sort of faux humanity. This is not some sort of appearance of humanity. This is participation in our humanity as the eternal Son of God took unto himself a true human nature. As Paul sets forth in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the curse of the law. There are a number of blessings that Scripture presses upon our hearts in the face of Christ's true humanity. That he is truly one of us. That John truly reposed upon his bosom. That they truly walked with him, watched him, drew near to him in the most intimate of friendships. There are so many blessings which Scripture opens up to the nearness of God in these terms and conditions. One of them is he became man to die. That's what Hebrews 2 says. He had to be man so that he could die to redeem us from the curse of the law. Not only did he stoop like that healthy parents to that sick child, he took that sickness into himself. He took that curse upon himself so that we would ever only know the light of God's face shining upon us as the Father of lights. He's also set forth as one who can sympathize with us, having tasted of all of our weaknesses, knowing, knowing what temptation feels like, though never succumbing to it. For he is like us in every way, save being without sin. And for this reason, the same reason when we were kids, we, we felt the comfort that came from our parents because we were of the same flesh. There was a comfort and a nearness that the very relationship of parent to child afforded as they condescended to us. So now that most intimate of relations as we look at the Lord Jesus Christ and see a true man, one of us, who knows, who wept, who hungered, who tired, who thirsted, who was everywhere beset by the reality of sin and misery, and yet was never defiled. He knows. And he says, come unto me, for I give grace and mercy, for I know your weaknesses, and I am able to help at all times. John sets forth perhaps the most lovely aspect of all. Why did he become man? To dwell with us. The verb used there in verse 14 is kind of a technical verb, to tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. Do you use that word with your friends? Probably not. But the Bible loves that word because it highlights this entire preparatory time of God setting on display the true blessedness that was his people's, that he gave to his people. It wasn't the gifts. It wasn't the fertility. 
It wasn't the protection from enemies. It wasn't the promise that animals weren't going to attack them. It wasn't the promise that sickness was not going to ravage them. It wasn't the protection from plague and pestilence and famine. What was the blessing? What distinguished Israel from every other nation on the world, in the world? I will dwell among you. You will be my people. I will be your God, and I will dwell among you. You see it flickered forth in the tabernacle, but even there, there's God's presence with distance. And then you see it in the temple, and there's God's presence. Incredible. God dwells among us, but there's also distance. And you see it fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, who says, tear down this temple, in three days I'll raise it up. And they knew he was talking about his body after he had been raised from the dead. He became flesh to dwell among us. He is the embodiment of that glorious people. I am your God, you are my people, and I will dwell among you, not at a distance, in the most intimate of capacities, indeed embodied in the God-man, God and man in one person. And we in him, and the Spirit in us. The wonders of these blessings brought to pass in the only Redeemer of God's elect, the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder we delight to declare the exclusive salvation of Jesus Christ? Every other imposter brings an imposter salvation. The true Savior brings true salvation. May the church continue to declare it, though it causes millions to stumble it will bring about the salvation of God's elect. Let's pray. Mm. How excellent are your ways, O Lord. How beautiful is our King, our God. Most excellent among men. Beauty is poured out upon his lips. His gifts are better than life itself. Teach us to adore this one, to seek all of our blessedness from him and from him alone, for in him you delight to bestow the choicest riches. Continue to cause this great gospel to go forth, a terrible thing to stumble over, but a wonderful thing to see delighted in. And these things are mysteries. We pray, Father, that you would retain the church's witness to the exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ and the exclusive Savior. For there is salvation in no other name. May we never tire of declaring it. For we pray in Christ. Amen.